Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, Medical Student Intern Survival Guide. The Behind the Knife Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide is a surgical education podcast series that focuses on high-yield topics relevant to both medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you have any suggestions or requests, please shoot us an email. Our addresses can be found in the show notes. All right, we've got a good one for you today, septic shock. This topic can be quite a bit more challenging than some of the others because it covers so much ground. Yeah, it really doesn't fit into an algorithm or a chapter. So that's why we're going to break it down for you in a clear, concise, and clinically relevant way. First, we're going to cover the basic physiology of septic shock. Then we'll talk about some of the controversy related to the new definitions of sepsis. And finally, we'll put it all together with a case scenario. Yeah, I don't think we can uh, oversell this one, Vahag. It is so critically important to recognize septic shock and to know how to treat it. And uh, while the overall mortality of septic shock has gone down in recent years, it's still in the 20 to 30% range, and that's even at the best uh, centers around the world. And every hour you delay the administration of antibiotics in a septic patient, mortality increases by 4%. 4%. And, uh, you know, this is really, it's the real deal. It's something you should feel comfortable with uh, before you start intern year, because this is one of those things where you could actually save someone's life. I agree. So to get things started, let's take a step back and define shock. Shock is reduced organ perfusion that results in cellular dysfunction. Now, it's probably equally important to state that shock is not defined by hypotension. While it is typical, typically the case that hypotension and shock go hand in hand, not everyone that's hypotensive is in shock. Okay, so then what's actually happening when a patient is septic, Vaughn? So in the simplest of terms, the patient has an infection, their body is fighting it, and the immune system is releasing cytokines and other mediators that can harm the body. Yeah, that's right. And the physiologic underpinnings of septic shock are leaky vasoplegic vessels. Uh, The fluid doesn't stay in the intravascular space where it should, and those vessels lose their ability to squeeze down and direct blood flow to critical organs. There are formal definitions out there as well. In fact, the definition of sepsis has undergone multiple iterations, the most recent of which came out in 2016. The previous definition, sepsis 2, is the definition that Patrick and I grew up on as students and junior residents, and most notably, this included the SERS criteria. Sepsis 3, which is the current definition of sepsis, uses a scoring system known as SOFA, or Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. Okay, so let's get some of the semantics out of the way so we can get on with the clinical stuff, which is really what we're after here. Uh, But we're going to spend some time talking about this. The sepsis 2 definition is neatly defined by a continuum that includes SERS, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And it starts with a patient being positive for two or more SERS criteria, which includes temperature less than or greater than 38 degrees, a heart rate greater than 90, white blood cell count less than 4 or greater than 12, and a respiratory rate greater than 20 or PaCO2 less than 32. So next on the continuum is sepsis, which is defined by SERS plus a documented infection. For instance, a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, or a wound infection. 
Right. And moving on down the line uh, is severe sepsis, which includes sepsis uh, that is accompanied by organ damage. Like altered mental status or a bump in the patient's creatinine. And last is septic shock, which is defined by severe sepsis plus hypotension. Now, memorizing all this stuff really isn't critical, but recognizing the clinical importance of it is. And, and what, this, uh, what that continuum and all of these confusing definitions are actually saying is that septic patients don't start sick. They may just have an elevated white count and an increased respiratory rate, but as they move across this continuum, they get progressively more sick. And our case that we're going to talk about here shortly is going to highlight this. So to summarize, sepsis 2 includes SERS, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. Okay, so let's talk about sepsis 3. Sepsis 3 pairs things down to sepsis and septic shock only meaning that the categories of SERS and severe sepsis are out. Sepsis is defined as a suspected or documented infection with an increase in the patient's SOFA score by at least two. Unfortunately, the SOFA score is kind of unwieldy and includes measurements like GCS, blood pressure, bilirubin, and creatinine, which are difficult to use in a mental calculation. Thankfully, there is a quick SOFA score, or QSOFA, this essentially serves the same role as the SERS criteria and includes three items. One, systolic blood pressure less than 100. Two, GCS less than 15. And three, a respiratory rate greater than 22. If a patient has two or more QSOFA criteria, they may be septic and should be looked at more closely. The second part of sepsis 3 is septic shock which is defined as sepsis plus the need for vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial pressure greater than 65 and a lactate greater than 2 despite adequate fluid resuscitation. Okay, so that's sufficiently confusing, but before we move on to our case, we should point out some of the controversy here. Uh, some surgeons really hate QSOFA, and to understand why, uh, you need to know that QSOFA is a score that predicts mortality in patients. It's, it does not predict sepsis. And it was, when it was originally released, QSOFA had not yet been tested prospectively. Since then, numerous uh, prospective papers have come out that compare QSOFA to SERS. And when taken together, these papers show that SERS is more sensitive than QSOFA, but that QSOFA is more specific than SERS for identifying patients who develop, go on to develop septic shock. So um, pick your poison of a hog, I, although I think most folks would prefer a screening test that is more sensitive. Uh, so, all right, you have been adequately informed here. Uh, I think uh, you can look smart now on, on rounds tomorrow. All right, so let's do the case. Uh, this case will focus on recognizing and treating sepsis using the surviving sepsis guidelines. These guidelines are wonderful, and we highly recommend them to all students. Yeah, everyone else should read this, really. Yeah, so Patrick, it's July 5th, and you're the fresh intern on service. Your patient is a 56-year-old man with COPD and type 2 diabetes. He also had colon cancer and his status post-sigmoid colectomy with a primary anastomosis five days ago. His post-operative course has been unremarkable except for an ileus. You see the patient on AM rounds and with your chief resident. Uh, the patient tells you guys that it was a rough night and he isn't feeling well. His vital signs are unremarkable and his exam is notable for abdominal distension with mild tenderness to palpation at the incision sites. A few hours later, you go to see him again and he looks about the same, except now he complains of feeling a bit weak. So what would you like to do? Yeah, uh, our guy isn't feeling too well. Uh, uh, v, I don't, did you mention his vitals? 
Uh, temperature is 98.6. Heart rate is 102. Respiratory rate is 18. And your blood and his blood pressure is 118 over 62. Yeah, and how does that compare to the past few days? All right, good question. So you look back on the flow sheet, and you see his heart rate has typically been in the 70s and 80s, and his systolic blood pressure in the 130s. Yeah, what about his urine output? So he has nothing recorded on the flow sheet for the past 12 hours. Yeah. Um, it's critical. I would confirm that the patient hasn't peed. Okay, so you talk to the nurse and the patient, and you confirm, in fact, that he has not had any urine output. Okay, so I'm going to start by giving this guy a one liter bolus uh, of lactated ringers. Okay, good move. It's important to recognize that it's easy for surgical patients to get dehydrated. We make them uh, NPO before the procedure. We subject them to long operations with insensible losses, and they typically have limited oral intake postoperatively. A lot of times, uh, the patients just need a fluid bolus. Typically, we'll give half liter or one liter boluses of normal saline or lactated ringers unless there's some significant cardiopulmonary issues. Yeah, that's a good point, Fahag. And, and when it comes to urine output, we should probably define what is enough. And most students know the definition, one half cc per kg per hour. But what does it actually mean? Are you going to do this math every time? What if the urine output is not actually recorded every hour? So one trick is to remember the numbers, uh, these two numbers, 25 cc's per hour or 250 cc's per eight-hour shift. So in most normal-sized patient, patients, this constitutes an adequate urine output. So that's good. Two numbers, 25 and 250. Okay, so you give a liter bolus, and then you come back to see the patient. He still feels like crap, and his heart rate has actually gone up now to 120. When you look over the flow sheet, you see that he still hasn't had any urine output. And uh, so what are you going to do next? Yeah. Yeah, so this is you know really becoming more concerning now. Uh, at this point, I would send off a CBC and a BMP, and I would call my my chief resident or attending. And uh, I also want to make sure that this patient really is non-responsive to fluids. I want to make sure this, this is not just dehydration. Uh, so I want to complete a fluid challenge. All right. So what do you exactly mean by that? A fluid challenge? Yeah. Per the surviving sepsis guidelines, this is a thirty cc per kg uh, a bolus, or for a seventy kilogram patient, that's two point one liters. So you can forget the math and just know that in an average size adult, uh, they need two liters of fluid uh, before you can really call them non-responsive. Uh, so what happens if we give this this uh, our patient a second liter? So unfortunately, the patient still has no urine output. He remains afebrile with a heart rate of 120 and a systolic blood pressure of 100. Your labs come back and his white blood cell count has increased from 8 to 14. And his creatinine has increased from 0.8 to 1.9. All right, Bahag, at this point, uh, we know more than enough. This guy is septic. You can forget the semantics, forget about SIRS, forget about QSOFA. Our patient is sick. Uh, so I'm going to start uh, uh, um, by treating this gentleman uh, as recommended by the surviving sepsis guidelines. And in the end, this really boils down to five items. Number one giving broad-spectrum antibiotics as soon as possible. Number two, resuscitating the patient. Three, obtaining cultures. Four, thinking about logistics and monitoring. I'm going to tell you what that is shortly. And five, obtaining source control. And this this, uh, this should, should be repeated here. Again, the surviving sepsis guidelines really boil down to five simple steps. One, starting those broad-spectrum antibiotics as soon as possible. Two, giving fluids. Three, obtaining cultures. Four, 
thinking about the logistics and monitoring for this patient, and five, obtaining source control. Now, we're going to talk about these items individually and in that order, but remember, in real life, a lot of these things are going to happen all at once. All right, so let's start with antibiotics. You want to give broad-spectrum antibiotics, but what does that mean? In general, this means that you're covering for gram-positive, gram-negative, and anaerobic bugs. In select cases, you might also want to cover for uh, fungus. Antibiotics are confusing, but three commonly used regimens include 1. Vancomycin and Zosin, 2. Vancomycin and Miropenem, and 3. Vancomycin, Cefepime, and Flagyl. Okay, so then for our patient, I'm going to go ahead and order stat doses of Zosin and Vancomycin as my broad-spectrum antibiotic coverage. Okay, great. So what about fluids? You've given the patient two liters of crystalloid, and he actually has now gotten more tachycardic and hypotensive. Yeah. Uh, so if our patient was just dehydrated, I would expect those vital signs to have improved. And so I'm going to go ahead and give our patient another liter of lactated ringers. Exactly. So this is a common misconception. It's important to recognize that even after your fluid challenge, the patient still needs to get IV fluids for resuscitation. Remember, the main problem here is that septic patients have leaky vessels with no vascular tone. So, to what end are we going to give IV fluids? Yeah, the surviving sepsis guidelines recommend that we aim for a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 and that we reassess our resuscitation frequently using things like heart rate, urine output, and lactate. And ultimately, we're going to give this guy as much fluid as he needs to support his hemodynamics. This could be six, seven, eight, or more liters of fluid. Now, that being said, it's important to recognize that too much fluid is also a bad thing. And there are lots of studies out there that show that more fluid results in worse outcomes. So you don't want to drown the patient. But So once you start really cranking the fluid, you need to think about using things like vasopressors or giving things like albumin or blood products. And in the end, most importantly is rapidly identifying and obtaining source control. All right, so just to take a step back for a minute, we're working our way through the key elements of the surviving sepsis guidelines, which includes one, starting broad-spectrum antibiotics like zosin and vancomycin, two, fluid resuscitation, even beyond the two-liter fluid challenge, three, obtaining cultures, four, thinking about the logistics and monitoring of the patient, and five, source control. So let's talk about the third item, uh, cultures. So if my junior resident calls me in the middle of the night and tells me about a patient who may be getting septic, I'll ask them to pan culture the patient. Patrick, what does this mean? Yeah, pan culture is a colloquial term that I guess might be somewhat unique to surgery. That it means obtaining blood cultures, obtaining urine cultures, and obtaining a chest x-ray, uh, which obviously is not a culture at all. Okay, so blood, urine, and a chest x-ray. So another common misconception uh, would be to hold off on antibiotics until these studies are completed. Is this correct? Yeah, no, uh, that's correct. You, you, well, you never want to uh, delay antibiotic administration to complete your cultures. You always want to give antibiotics as soon as possible. All right. So moving on to the fourth item in the surviving sepsis treatment summary is logistics and monitoring. So what do we mean by that? Yeah, yeah, Bahak. So what we mean is this is really a situational thing. Remember, you are the intern on the floor. You're alone. It's the beginning of July. You literally just got a coat that extends past your butt. Uh, the logistics part of this means that you are going to call your chief resident or attending as soon as you recognize this patient is getting sick. 
You also want to contact your friendly surgical ICU and talk to the fellow or staff on call. You can tell them your situation and ask to move the patient to a higher level of care, which is entirely uh, appropriate. That's the logistical part of this. And in regards to monitoring. All right. So this refers to what you're actually going to do to the patient and, and what you're actually going to hook them up to, uh, to ensure that you're able to keep track of their vital signs. Uh, so for our patient, this would include telemetry, pulse oximetry, an arterial line, additional IV access, including a central line, and a Foley catheter. Right. So let's talk about those monitoring options. In the vast majority of patients, arterial lines are placed in the radial artery. The next best option is going to be your femoral artery, and in very rare cases, the brachial artery. A-lines are used to continuously monitor a patient's blood pressure, which again, we're using and aiming for a goal of greater than 65. They're also used to obtain arterial blood gases and allow for easy blood draws. Yeah, an ABG is so, 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 so valuable. It gives you a great deal of information. You know, and anytime you are working up a sick patient, whether you think they're septic or otherwise, think very carefully about obtaining an arterial or venous blood gas to get all that valuable information. Right, for sure. So let's talk about central lines. So central lines can be placed in the internal jugular, the subclavian, or the femoral vein. In many institutions, an ultrasound-guided IJ line is most common. So what are some indications for central line placement? Yeah, uh, access is the first. Um, this could be for high-volume resuscitation or medications like vasopressors or TPN. And when you simply need more ports to infuse a bunch of medications, like in this scenario. Uh, they can also be used for monitoring the CVP of a patient or uh, uh, to be used as an introducer sheath to advance something like a Swan-Gans catheter into the central venous system. Right. So it's important to remember that there are two broad categories of central lines. Those that are designed for high volume resuscitation, like a MAC cortis, which is short and wide, and those designed to get you more access, like a triple lumen catheter, which is long and skinny and has multiple channels. The rate at which you can infuse something is determined by the length and diameter of the catheter. The shorter and wider the catheter, the faster you can infuse fluids. So, if a hemorrhaging trauma patient comes in, you want to put something in like a MAC cortis. In the case of a septic patient, you want a lot of access for IV fluids, antibiotics, and vasopressors. So, a triple lumen catheter would work better. Yeah. Let's briefly touch on vasopressors. Vasopressors should be used in a hypotensive septic patient who is not responding to fluids. The surviving sepsis guidelines recommend norepinephrine as your first-line vasopressor. Now, remember, norepi has alpha and beta agonist properties, so it squeezes the vessels and it gives your heart a little boost. Now, once you start getting into higher dose of norepi, uh, the next vasopressor to add on, uh, as recommended by the guidelines, is vasopressin. Okay, Patrick, you call your chief, you transfer the patient to the ICU, you get your monitors in place, you insert a radial arterial line and get central access with the right IJ. For urine output, you place a Foley catheter. His heart rate is now 136 and, a, and the maps are around 55. Uh, at this point, the patient's now febrile. You start norepinephrine and this raises his mean arterial pressure to 65. Yeah, our patient is sick, but we really have done all the right things so far. And we need to understand where his infection is coming from and get source control as soon as possible. So now that he's a bit more stable, I would uh, get a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, uh, especially in this post-surgical patient. Okay, so great job. Source control is essential. 
Your patient goes down to the CT scanner where he is found to have an intra-abdominal abscess. You and your team coordinate to have a percutaneous drain placed by interventional radiology. Alternatively, it would be reasonable and in some cases indicated to skip IR uh, drainage and go straight to the OR to wash the patient out, place drains, and if an anastomotic leak was present, divert them with a proximal loop ileostomy or repair the anastomosis. All right, that was a tough one for sure, but uh, remember, recognizing and treating a septic patient is so critically important. So we hope this episode helped clarify some of the confusion around septic shock. Uh, v, let's go forward with a, uh, a rapid-fire review. Okay. Okay, so what is shock? So shock is reduced organ perfusion that results in cellular dysfunction. What are the physiologic underpinnings of septic shock? Leaky and vasoplegic vessels. Okay. What are the two scoring systems you need to be aware of? Right. The older SERS criteria and the newer QSOFA score. All right. What are the five key components of the 50-page surviving sepsis guidelines? Number one, broad-spectrum antibiotics. Number two, resuscitation. Three, cultures. Four, think about logistics and monitoring of the patient. And five, probably most importantly, get source control. All right, and last, what's your recommended vasopressor in sepsis? First line, norepinephrine. All right, thanks for joining us. And remember, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.